Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show. This week we are looking at geopolitics and the contagion. How are events in the Ukraine affecting global markets? Where are the opportunities within that? And what are some of the steps that you can take as an investor today to be able to either protect your portfolio or indeed capitalize on some of the moves we expect to see? Plenty to cover in here. Look forward to seeing you in the show. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter, and as always, my offsider and co-host, Mitchell Lorenzo. Absolutely, and I should be co-host with that suit you've got on today, AB. Nice kit. What can I say? Look really good. Looking sharp. Thank you very much. And shame, uh, it's on, shame it's an audio, but uh, for the benefit of those people listening, man, I look sharp today. <laughs> well, let's get some sharp comments from yourself, and I appreciate this is going to be a fairly high-level episode today because... What I want to draw our listeners' attention to is the geopolitical contagion. There's a war going on between Russia and Ukraine, as we know, and really what the media is reporting, what most people probably only understand is surface-level stuff. Hmm. So we want to dive into the, the deepness of what this kind of contagion can generate. Well, that's, uh, that's going to be hard to contain to 20, 30 minutes, but uh, it's, it's probably one of the most fascinating and interesting parts of, of financial modeling and understanding, I guess, how fundamentally markets are driven. I'm very fortunate. I've got 30 years under my belt and, and, and my career started in this way, um, you know, from an economics perspective. And probably the easiest way to describe this, if you imagine a jigsaw puzzle, Mitch, you know, you've got all the pieces of the puzzle laid out and most people have got a handle on one or two of those pieces. So if those couple of pieces that we're talking about today happen to be the UK, Ukraine and its conflict with Russia. There's a couple of the pieces of the puzzle. There they are. You can see what's on the picture. It's nice and clear. Where it becomes quite challenging, rather like a jigsaw puzzle, is that each one of those pieces connects with four other pieces and has a different relationship with each of those four other pieces of the puzzle. And once you work out what that relationship is, you can put them together. The only challenge you then have is that you've got four new pieces that are interconnected with another four pieces of uh, different types of information. So something that's working on uh, you know, at a base level that's very, very obvious becomes very complex very, very quickly when it comes to understanding the nuances, if you will, of how financial markets are connected. So I'll do my best to try and keep this straightforward. I certainly hope it doesn't come across as condescending. I wouldn't uh, insult your time uh, and waste your time or mine by doing that. But certainly trying to make this a little bit more simpler gives people uh, perhaps a little bit more confidence in knowing why things are happening. And that's something that's very, very important when it comes to your trading decisions. Absolutely. You need to know what going on and why it's occurring so that you can make your decisions. So on that note, AB, to jump in, we talk about cause and effects. Mm. If we had to kick it, off, kick it off, probably the easiest one would be sanctions. So we know that the West, for the most part, has imposed a myriad of different sanctions on Russia. How would you then digest that and connect that further into the jigsaw? Well, the big one, I think, is on foreign currency reserves. So I, I think the number was something in the order of about 350 billion of foreign currency reserves, which currently are frozen um, and not available to the Russian government. The effect of that means that your offshore money, your reserves that you've maybe got squirreled away um, you know, with Chase or JP Morgan or whomever it may be around the world, you no longer have access to. So if you want to pay for something, and, and it's, for example, in US dollars, you've got to pay for that out of what's left in your piggy bank, so to speak, that you might be holding domestically. And that's going to be a relatively small proportion of your your, your foreign currency reserves. And you'll burn through that pretty quickly when you've got a, uh, an economy the size, of, the size of Russia. So that's an example of a sanction immediately that puts huge, huge pressure um, on the Russian currency 
Why? Because you need to sell rubles to buy dollars to pay for your overseas bills effectively. And this has been, sorry, Gord. I was going to say, and, and the ruble, the way it's been traveling, it's down, I think, what, 45%. Mm. Uh, you know, so It's actually up against the Australian dollar, believe it or not. Really? Don't, don't ask me how that's happened, but yeah, it's actually wow. currently up. But yeah, it, it, it's devalued significantly. It's down sort of 50, 60% against the US dollar, which means now that pile of money that you had buys you far less in the world market. So there's an effective way of putting a lot of pain on an economy very, very quickly by effectively devaluing your local currency. Uh, and that pain is broad-based because everybody feels that all of a sudden anything that's imported becomes significantly more expensive. You know, we think we've got inflation here in Australia, but when you, your effective cost of living is just doubled overnight, that's a substantial rise in cost of living. That's something that's, that's a big pain factor. That's why it was introduced uh, to sort of, on the West part, push some of the pain of the political decision-making down uh, to generate some level of, I guess, political unrest and, and, and pain at the, at the grassroots level in the economy. So it's pretty serious when things like that happen. Secondly, um, you know, financial markets in particular, uh, you know, Russia, like any country around the world, has got debt, uh, which it's borrowed from overseas markets. Um, and um, and there become what's called a coupon uh, payment or interest payments on that kind of debt. And again, that debt repayment would more likely be either in euros or US dollars. So you've got to go to the foreign exchange markets to buy euros or US dollars to repay that debt. But now you've got to repay it by taking rubles, which are worth 50% less. You need twice as much. So you need right? twice as much effectively. Uh, and and, and the, the knock-on effect of that, of course, is that there is a chance that you simply can't make those interest rate payments or you're not prepared to burn your currency in order to do that. Now, there was a coupon payment due from Russia just recently, mm. and I think it was in the order of you know a couple of hundred million, if not billions, mm. to the US, I believe, in US dollars. Mm. They managed to pay it. But if we take the scenario fast forward a couple of months where they can't make a coupon payment yep. in an overseas market on a bond, what would then be the effect on the Russian economy? Effectively, um, what would happen, that could be a default rate. Uh, and, uh, or default event, and we saw something like that happen with Evergrande in China, you know, the construction company, a couple of months ago. Uh, and let's put the hand up and say, we, we don't have the cash to pay for it. And, and effectively, um, that type of default means that you sit around the table and negotiate, no, what are we going to do? We're not writing the money off. Let's just work out what's going to happen. It's not much fun. Um, you know, your credit status, just like if you were in the public and it was your own personal loan that you decided not to pay, gets radically affected by that, meaning that if you want to borrow anything in the future, it's going to be you know, significantly more expensive because you've demonstrated you know, poor credit management. And in all fairness, Ru Russia's defaulted before. A lot of people won't realize this, but back in 1997, I remember, you know, during my time in London, um, yeah, that was the 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 the. Asian currency crisis in particular was 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 a major issue where you saw the same thing happening in Asia where currencies were getting devalued and the same thing then happened in Central and Eastern Europe and Russia defaulted in 98. So it's defaulted before. It's just going to can't pay. Not going to pay. Just can't pay. Mm. So how does that then affect your your default risk and the premiums that go with that. Yeah, anything in financial markets you can you can insure at risk. You know, we use put options, for example, to protect some of our positions in equities. Um, you can protect uh, as the lender um, against those sorts of events, uh, you know, credit default swaps and things in that nature, which are quite hybrid financial instruments. CDO is another one. These were all really the cause of the GFC. Um, the big short is a great movie to yeah. watch for that. So, you know, you go back sort of 15, 16 years ago, these were at the epicenter of what was what was going on in that particular instance then. So there are ways that you can insure uh, as the lender, but it then makes it prohibitively expensive to do business. And these are all designed 
time very much to put you know the the, the foot on the throat of Russia economically. Um, you know, and you get well, you know, they've got tons of oil and gas, so just sell some of that. But this, on the other side of the sanctions, of course, there are trade embargoes preventing the purchase of those commodities, styming the flow of foreign currency into the country. It's it's interesting just to flesh that out. You know, from a mere couple of sanctions on their banking system how that then flows on to the rest of the world when we talk about currency and debt and, and, and risk insurance and all that kind of thing, AB. But if we talk more specifically now about commodities, mm. um, in particular oil, what kind of effect are we seeing from those sanctions? What could we see in the global stage? Oil, we spoke to you know a few months ago now in terms of you know, the biggest risk um, is, is on the supply side, and that was without geopolitics. Obviously, now you can add a good measure of geopolitics into the, the mix, and hence why we saw oil prices charge up in the way we did. Interestingly, they had a brief flirt with $97 back under that psychological $100 amount and, and back above again now. Uh, and I suspect they're going to stay there for some time on the basis that yeah, Russia is a major supplier uh, in, the, in the oil production uh, side of things. And I guess making up for a shortfall in oil, it's not like, oh, we'll just pump some more. There's quite a significant lead time uh, to bring on tap uh, resources that are available. So, you know, I think Abu Dhabi has talked about punching uh, a little bit more out of the ground and, and, and no doubt the Saudis will come to the table. I'm sure if you look, you know, from an American perspective, whilst the US is largely self-sufficient for, for its hydrocarbon f- fuel, um, they'll probably end up doing a deal with Venezuela or something like that, uh, which puts, you know, great cheap fuel right on its doorstep. So yeah, this this rise in prices that we've seen has probably been the most marked impact of the war on, on us in the West, so to speak, where we've already got higher costs of living uh, with inflation all of a sudden. You know, I just filled my car up last week, it's $182 to fill it up. And, Oof. you know, that's a, that's what a $50 jump from what it was a couple of weeks previously. And you've actually got absolutely nothing more to show for that additional 50 bucks that you've just paid out. So to an extent, higher oil prices are almost a tax uh, because most people's petrol and oil consumption is pretty fixed. You're not going to say, oh, we're not taking the kids to school today because oil is too expensive. It's just something you've just got to kind of soak up and, and push through. So it is a tacit tax on people and their disposable income. Uh, and it's very, very painful. And it's the sort of thing we've already seen an interest rate rise in the US and it's going to continue to push prices higher um, here in Australia. And no doubt we'll be seeing an interest rate rise here on the back of that too. But you know, oil prices, I think we're going to see north of 100 for a, a reasonably sustained period of time. This also is aggravated, I think, by the lack of investment in bringing on board new oil resources. We've talked previously of a greenification. It's very, very hard for public companies to go to the marketplace and say, oh, we've discovered a new oil reserve and we're going to start pumping it because it's fairly unpalatable uh, in terms of the broader sort of ESG filter that people look at through markets these days. Uh, And so that investment really hasn't been that strong either. And now as an example where you really needed that investment five, eight years ago to, to have those reserves to better pump them for such a crisis that we're seeing. It's sad, and to hear you say that it could stay above above a hundred bucks a barrel is is crippling. I filled up my car on the weekend; one hundred and forty bucks used to cost me eighty. Yeah. So r- ridiculous. What about metals and grains? AB on that as well. Sure. Well, I think I mean metals. Like if we take for example, yeah, what we've seen with gold and the like. Um, gold gold has been a safe haven asset in the past during crisis and um, we've spoken to this previously that hasn't really been the inflation play over recent years maybe crypto has eroded some of that and you know to an extent I think you know the uncertainty in the Ukraine has probably had a negative impact on the crypto markets given so much of it is mined there um, 
So I think gold is likely to have a further run up. Um, it's a safe haven asset for maybe if you're an oligarch and you need to park your cash into something that's not that easy to confiscate, just don't load it in your private jet and land in America. So they confiscated a couple at the weekend doing that. Um, so I can see gold probably having you know, a reasonably sustained period here, more than anything as just a risk hedge. Where the real price hikes and I guess price discovery is an issue is in the grains markets. You know, the Ukraine and Russia between them are about 30% of the world's wheat production, something like 25% uh, in the corn and barley space. And that's an enormous amount of production to take out of the, 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 the grains um, industry. What can you expect to see on the back of that? Well, you're not going to expect to see a softening of demand because, you know, in the case of wheat, it does go into the foodstuffs uh, and, and people aren't going to eat less food because grain has got more expensive. In the case of corn, you know, corn isn't so much used for food these days, or at least human food. It's used for you know, feedlot for animal production, so particularly beef production in feedlots, and also, of course, ethanol for as a biofuel and with you know, fuel prices and all over 100 bucks a barrel. You know, the case for ethanol and biofuel is actually pretty strong. So you can imagine more corn sort of getting siphoned into that pathway, if you will, uh, putting a lot of price pressure to the upside on the grains markets in particular. And Again, it's not, oh, we'll just grow our own. You know, if you're in the situation where you didn't have enough grain, it's unlikely in your bachelor pad that you can have a window box with some corn growing out there that you're going to you know, mill and turn into bread or flour or whatever it may be. It's not something that's that easy to replace. And also the timing center uh, around grain production is pretty fixed too because it's driven by the seasons of nature. So there's a window uh, for plant and there's a window for harvest. And if you miss those windows, you're not growing corn or, or, or wheat particularly this year. Um, you, know, you might grow some you know, winter wheat or red barley or whatever it may be later in the year, but you're missing this particular cycle. And you know, if you're a farmer in the Ukraine, you know, getting the tractor out of the barn and planting some seeds is probably not that list on your, not high on that list of your priorities just at the moment, given the you know, trauma that the country's going through. So you can expect a, you know, a serious supply shortfall, which means demand not going anywhere and significantly higher prices for grains. And what that basically means for mum and dad at home is higher prices at the supermarket for their food. Which we've already seen mm. over the last few months yep. out of control already. This is a warm-up act. I, I, I happen to happen to be in my uh, local IGA to pick up some bits and pieces at the weekend. And it's the first time I've probably been shopping for, for a little while. And I was literally blown away looking at some of the prices for foodstuffs and where they're sitting right now. Absolutely extraordinary. Uh, and I think this is this is really the beginning. It's not, oh, we're tapped out. That's as high as it's going to go. This really is the start. Uh, and that's something that's going to cause significant financial stress for a lot of households. Think about your fuel for your car, food for the house, putting electricity on, all of those things will become more and more expensive than where they're sitting right now. Um, you know, add to that higher mortgage rates too. It's It's got the potential to be a fairly challenging time, I think, for, for the consumer um, globally, particularly here in Australia. Uh, you know, we've already got inflation happening and I think we're going to see a lot more of that. That said, you know, relative to what our, our friends in the Ukraine are going through, it's, it's not that big a problem. It's painful, but it's not like getting your house bombed, is it? So to catch you off guard here, AB, mm. and I appreciate this may sound a little bit counterintuitive, is if we're paying more for fuel and grocery prices naturally due to what's going on, do we necessarily need an interest rate hike here? Because you're already, your spending's already being controlled by virtue of that, right? 
It's an interesting one, isn't it? Now, if you're the Reserve Bank, your job is, inflation isn't prices being higher, it's the rate of change that you've got to manage. And you can argue, as the RBA has you know, for, for, for quite some number of months now, that this is transitory. It's not transitory, it's structural. Well, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell in the US tried to make that comment and then quickly backtracked. Mm, you know, and if you think about the Fed, you know, the, the US, they raised interest rates, um, you know, this month, 25 basis points, quarter of a percent. And I think looking at the economic data, they've probably arrived at the party four months late. Uh, and I think you're going to see quite an overshoot of that, not only you know, because of the track that the US was on anyway, uh, but also with the natural price rises you're seeing along the lines of the commodity price moves we've, we've talked to in this podcast. And, and I think because they've arrived at the party late and the momentum has built up in inflation, you're gonna see a significantly harder raising cycle. I think it's gonna be pretty quick too. And I would not be at all surprised to see two and a half percent interest rates in the US from 25 basis points now. So we're one-tenth of the way through that raising cycle. Wow. Now, yeah, at the same time, the impact of those interest rates will have a, quite a varied effect on different people. If you take, for example, in the time that US interest rates have been effectively at zero, which is about two years, you've seen a stock market that's 76% higher. You've seen, and take which index you want to, to take your benchmark on this, but a property market that's about 37% higher. So what you've had is an incredible creation of wealth for a segment of the population. And you're gonna have an awful lot of people that have been left behind. In the same sentence, I suppose, you could argue that those figures probably don't look that much different here in Australia. We've had a terrific run in equity markets um, since you know, the COVID sell-off in, in February, March, which was what, 19 or 20, um, time flies, 19. Um, and you've seen also a property market that's been off to the races in that time too, creating you know, a huge growth in paper wealth for a segment of the population. You've also seen a large chunk of people that haven't been able to participate in that, people that have rent instead of owned, people that haven't been in the stock market that are living week to week, month to month. Um, you know, they've missed out on that. And as such, they're gonna bear the brunt of this price rise pressure that we're seeing with inflation now, which is, which is, there's no easy way of sugarcoating it. That's the reality of what's gonna happen. So you have very much a two tier effect or impact of, of, of inflation, that's for sure. And it's, uh, it's gonna be crippling for, for so many people, yet it's something you can do something about. Absolutely, and and we've certainly spoken of that, you know, the investment plays with that, that you can um, effectively hedge out that, that risk, AB. To ask you one more question on the geopolitical contagion, mm. we spoke of crypto before, mm. and you mentioned that a lot of crypto is mined in, in Ukraine and mm. Russia, and that the ability for them to do that now has been hindered. So crypto being a commodity, so to speak, a finite amount of it, if, it's, if there's less being mined, correct me if I'm wrong here, um, and the currency is being devalued, would that not push more people to be using cryptocurrency to pay for things? I'd, I'd hazard to guess um, there'd be a good number of oligarchs that have probably converted their asset base into more discreet um, 
assets than maybe cash and property holdings and things like that. So yeah, there's been probably strong demand on that side of things. The flip side of that, one of the things that we're constantly seeing, and we've just seen yeah more, more paperwork on that come through from our regulator here in Australia, is is the level of regulation, particularly in that crypto space, is increasing all of the time. Um, and it won't be. We talked about this ages ago. Um, yeah, probably a good year and a half ago that at some point crypto will become a regulated market, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, it reduces risk on the part of the consumers. Uh, removes a, a big fraud risk on it. I guess what it does do is put a bit of a pin in the balloon for those people that are of the view that oh, it's a decentralized, you know, free for all. Uh, we're not going to be controlled by anybody. That's called anarchy um, type of uh, scenario. Uh, and it's going to probably put the handbrake on that and make it less palatable from that perspective. Uh, also makes laundering money from a crime perspective a little harder. All of those things, which are good, good, a good maturation, if you will, in that asset class. Um, but yeah, I think during times of uncertainty and, uh, you know, volatility in markets and, and crisis like we've seen, assets typically flow back into what are ordinarily safer haven spaces. US denominated for a start. Um, gold we've already talked about. Uh, I also think, you know, in terms of the way that portfolio construction, if you're in an equity market scenario, um, perhaps should be considered is in those dependable, solid earnings growth businesses on reliable, robust dividends and out of some of the more speculative areas of the market. You know, emerging markets, maybe not right now, bring that back in. Um, you know, um, tech versus, um, you know, top 20 leaders, probably top 20 leaders. Um, and within there, there's some special situations. We've talked about the grains and the energy complex, which are both very easy to invest in. You don't need to be trading in futures and commodities. You can be trading an exchange traded fund uh, and get exposure to those. Also, you know, defense stocks, military spending. I think Germany's just announced $100 billion of defense spending. Um, whether that's directly or as a result of what's going on uh, around the corner uh, remains to be seen. Um, but that $100 billion has got to go somewhere. So if you think about companies like Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, you know, Martin Baker, all the typical defense type businesses uh, that typically do well out of a good war. Um, that's the reality of where there's good money flow going in. So to go back to where we started from, you know, if we look at th the world as a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle, and we've got two pieces being Russia and the Ukraine, and we're looking at, we've talked a little bit about the ripple effect, if you will, of what's going on there. All of this is going to cause change if the nature of that war changes and escalates um, either with NATO becoming involved or the nature of the weapons being used you know, becoming, it's hard to say less palatable because war is not palatable under any circumstance, but chemical or biological or worse still nuclear um, would really change what that landscape then looks like. The ripple effect is that you know, doing business with those uh, with Russia has become you know prohibitive. We're going to see likely a default, which will send a bit of a shockwave through credit markets. Although it's not wholly unexpected, um, you're seeing money flow back into more defensive areas within equities. You're seeing commodity prices drive higher in in the direct commodities that are affected with that, and and then the knock-on effect of that, of course, is down the road at Coles, Woolies, the IGA, uh, when people walk in there and buy their weekly groceries and fill their car up. So the ripple effect goes a long way out right the way around to the, the boundaries of the puzzle and beyond. All the more reason to get educated, AB. That was uh, an awesome episode. Thank you for that. Absolute pleasure. Anytime. There you have it, guys. Plenty to digest there. Make sure you give us a review and a rating so we can get this message out further and we'll look forward to hosting you next week.